it's matt <laughs> it's nap time right now for me so um, uh, i drink i drank some coffee good and for you. it made me really sleepy <laughs> yeah i had coffee at lunch but that was like two hours ago and it was a rather large lunch so i'm right in the pocket of uh wanting to take sleep, a little nap sleep pocket yeah yeah the sleep pocket but it's me it's matt oh and me hillary and it's marooned on mars with matt and hillary that's right, the <laughs> podcast where we discuss... Uh, what do we discuss? Uh, what is this? Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy. One chapter at a time. One chapter at a time. We're in um, Blue Mars, part six, and in the Outback. Um, it's freezing outside. It's just like Mars outside. Uh, yeah, we've really it's been... It's like Blue Mars outside. It's not like Red Mars outside. No, no we have really been... Um, We've been hit hard here in the upper Midwest. It is um, something like a high of six degrees today, and that's going to be the highest high for like the next. Oh no, it's supposed to be a little bit warmer. It's going to warm up this weekend a little, and and then, but then next Wednesday and Thursday, it's going to be um, like dangerously cold outside. These are um, my mom texted me <laughs> to remind me that. Um, I can only remember, I grew up in Chicago, mm -hmm. and in that time, I only remember school being canceled twice because mm -hmm. of the weather. Um, once, I'm pretty sure, was in January of 1979, where we had a famously huge blizzard that was really awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, at least if you were a child, probably if you were an adult, it was not that awesome. And then once, sometime in the 80s, um, School was closed because the high temperature was going to be something like minus 20, and yeah. the wind chill was like, you know, 120 below zero. What? Like Probably not that. But, you know, minus like, 40. it was like a yeah. deep, deep, deep wind chill. So yeah. school was canceled, um, and uh, my dad taught at the school that my sister and I went to, and my mom might have actually been teaching there at the time, mm. too. Uh, so we all had the day off. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went ice skating. That's fun. <laughs> I think you might have told that story before. Have I told podcast. a story in this you podcast? Might, I don't know. You told me about ice skating uh, in the well. In a I only have like four. On a day I have four stories. One yeah, is right. once it was very cold. <laughs> uh, one is once uh, I can't. Think very of hot. I, I actually probably don't. I probably only have one story. Um, anyway, so I'm did, not afraid. That's what my mom was reminding me that there's no reason to be afraid of no. the wind chill, even though I actually don't feel afraid of it. Because, you know. It's very brave of you. Because well, you have a house that you live in. Yeah, exactly. I stay indoors. I am housed. Um, yeah. And, yeah, employed. Well, so I'm not in danger of being thrown out of that house anytime yeah. soon. But school did close here, as you recall, again, for Snowmageddon back in 2009 that's right. or 10. That's right. A snowstorm that famously, when everybody was freaking out in advance of it, I was like, come on, it's not going to be that bad. And, and then it really fucking sucked. And I had the flu. School was closed for... The University of Chicago was closed for three days, I think. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Because uh, I remember it opened back up on Friday because I went to a mass culture workshop that day. But people left their cars 
out on the on Lake, Shore, on Lake Shore Drive. Drive they abandoned yeah. their cars all over town actually because they literally couldn't, you couldn't drive. go anywhere. Yeah. And then um, and then I know they closed schools two years ago. I think for the cold, there was one of those days when it was dangerously cold yeah. and like public school was closed. Yeah. And uh, so I'm planning on canceling classes next week. I think that I think that seems fine. I yeah. think that seems good. Take um, home midterms. You know. Yeah. Stay home. Take them home, guys. Take them Do home. Do your midterm at home. Uh, treat yourself. Uh, yeah, tra- tra- treat yourself to this midterm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's cold and, uh, uh, you know, but it is January, so it's it's supposed to be cold. That's true. That's a really good point. Um, it's, it's a natural weather phenomenon it's, of it being cold. Yes. At this time of the year. <laughs> exactly. Despite global warming. When are we going to get some of that global warming? Uh-huh. And it's a really perfect um, time uh, to be reading this chapter, Anne in the Outback. It's an amazing chapter. This chapter we were talking about before we started recording. I do feel like if all the rest of the trilogy was just kind of just kind of okay, this chapter would make up for it. Like this chapter would justify the 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 existence of the whole trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's. It's an incredibly beautiful chapter. Yeah. I was just saying before we started recording, <laughs> which is obviously just start recording more quickly, uh, that, um, uh, I mean, as often in these books, I was really struck by the writing is beautiful, you know, um, and like so... Uh, so under described by the idea that that you know um, that uh, Robinson's writing is like hard science fiction, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, certainly, like it's you know serious, yeah. <laughs> and certainly, it takes like uh, it's quite interested in um, taking seriously uh, scientific descriptions mm-hmm. of the world and worlds. Um, but you know, like this, I I don't know this this chapter is like um, the style isn't isn't like this, but in terms of its kind of um, its a its ability to marshal like sort of poetic and affective registers, it makes me think a lot of Ursula Le Guin. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like I feel like he writes really different kinds of sentences than she does, um, and has a very different sort of sensibility, but. Um, I was just, I'm teaching the dispossessed right now. And one of the things I was sort of reminded of is that Le Guin has this like amazing ability to give you, uh, to give you something that like uh, you both um, feel compelled to think about it in a poetic fashion. And at the same time, it's doing this kind of amazing uh, very like tight and thoughtful world building too yeah. right you know so like um, that's just something Le Guin does all the time you know you can be reading it and you're like this feels like poetry but then also you're actually getting this very specific account um, of a place and of a set of human mm-hmm. relations you know mm-hmm. and that I feel like there's that quality to this chapter mm-hmm. too which is a thing we've talked about before in this book you know how often um, maybe particularly with the Anne stuff, but yeah. I think with other stuff, like, you know, these novels are just, like, willing to risk you kind of lying in the cut between <laughs> it's, a, it's a, like, representation of feelings and it's a description of a planet, you know. 
um, because it's both those things at once. But mm -hmm. so it gives you that kind of like charge of like, you know, landscape freighted with symbolic meaning, mm -hmm. human human being, uh, human being uh, like able to reflect on human being status by looking at the landscape. And then also just this like very like serious and intense like picture of a place that's a planet that's not our planet too. And so that latter thing is what you're describing as like characteristic of more hard hard sci-fi, like the more scientifically oriented stuff. Like do you have an author in mind that I mean I think the kind of cartoon of hard sci-fi is uh -huh. like you get the science right. So yeah. like you really know right, like yeah. you know one how photon torpedoes work it, yeah exactly well one <laughs> one like there's no faster than light travel right, right? Yeah, right you know right, and if right. there is if there is ftl obviously like you know right you know and second like you know uh you get the physics of like how the spaceship lands so i mean for whatever reason although you know um there's a kind of i think um probably acknowledged in some ways privileging of like science fiction that bases itself within some circles of science fiction mm -hmm. reading science fiction that bases itself on uh, like astrophysics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. basically you know like the real stuff yeah the real stuff right yeah and in that way like because you know like so much of the kind of the like um so much of like the kind of knowledge projects that go into this book are about like uh, geology mm -hmm. and like other features of planetary science, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, like history yeah. and like uh, you know the human science, right? right. So much of Economics that, right? And, yeah. Um, you know, that's a that's a way in which like I think um, I mean that's a different mode he, he of science fiction, yeah. Writing, right. right? And it's much more. I mean, what he would call himself a utopian science fiction oh, it's absolutely novelist, utopian. right? And that, and, and that encompasses not just the hard science of the hard sci-fi that you're, you're talking about, but also something about what it's like to be a human being living within these systems as well. Like what, it, what, what subjectivity looks like right, under right. these conditions. Right. I mean, um, uh, you know, Darko Suvin says that utopia is the socio-political subgenre of science fiction. Uh-huh. Um, but also the way that somebody like Suvin talks about science fiction, like, you know, in some ways, utopia is also the kind of, I don't know, the word ultimate is probably not right, but uh -huh. it is kind of like the the privileged form of science fiction okay. itself. Because like for Suvin, like, you know, what what's the thing that you get out of science fiction? One, you get the possibility of reflecting on your own mm -hmm. present. Um but you also get the possibility of a glimpse of what a transformed world of human relations mm -hmm. looks like. In other words, like what might be here in potential, but is not realized, mm -hmm. but could be mm -hmm. realized. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, Suvin's argument, part of what I like about his argument is that it, it's always about human relations, mm -hmm. you know, and that in some ways that can ground like a much more expansive account of what science fiction is. I was actually just also teaching a little Frederick Jameson from Archaeologies of the Future, oh, uh -huh. a chapter called The Future is Disruption, which is a really awesome chapter where he has some very interesting things to say about the Mars books and a chapter huh. that feels like where that he's thinking about utopia in a way that feels quite influenced by a reading of the Mars books. So one of the things that he says there is like, well, we might think that what utopia is now is basically like... Um, laying out the contest between utopian possibilities uh -huh. right um you know and he uses i mean i think obviously the mars trilogy is a kind of example of mm -hmm. 
that, right? You know, like the kind of like negotiations across a social field of different conceptions of the utopian and mm -hmm. different different ways of life, right? So in that way, like, you know, Mars with all of those little like all of its little settlements on it itself, you yeah. know, like not not resolved into one like singular whole, not living under one rule or one law or even right. one conception of what a good life is, yeah, right? right? right. Like, but it, but it's in like the contest and the struggle and the negotiation, and even in the difference or the differentiation that we see the utopian impulse that like the future is like. Uh, it there's so many things. Yeah, thoughts. I have so many. Like first, how crazy would it be if you had a student who's whose novels you later taught in your classes or wrote about? Like, yeah, that's a crazy at the idea. level that Frederick Jameson t talks about Kim Stanley Robinson. And then how crazy would it be? if you yourself wrote novels that then your mentors like taught. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. I can't really have imagine having a mentor who what, took me like, seriously. <laughs> what other, exactly. Well, that's the other thing too, is like, like what if, yeah, what, yeah, that, that would be crazy. But, um, uh, so that's like one little thing, like how many, what examples are there in like, letters in general, human, the humanities, where you have like a world-class professor who then like <laughs> administers a PhD to somebody who then becomes a world-class novelist and then they are like in constant dialogue. Like is there are there any other examples like that in contemporary I mean, you'd think that there must be English literature. Right? There, you know, there, are, about, like, there people, are. What about like like there's gotta be some like filmmaker, film theorist relation like yeah, that, right? Sort maybe, but like Filmmakers don't really put much truck in uh, much faith in what you know their professors have to say in terms of <laughs> film theory or film history. Like right, maybe right. there is some relationships there, but typically filmmakers are not really interested in film theory that much. Christopher Nolan might be an example. Might be a, a, a an exception. Werner Herzog would would probably be an exception, but. Um, I mean, Martin Martin Scorsese is a major film historian. I don't think that he is, he's certainly not considered a theorist, and right, I don't know right. that he engages with theory at all. Paul Schrader um, hasn't thought sort of theoretically. He, I think he does have a PhD or something in film or something like that, but Paul Schrader's scholarship is not really that much um, respected, or at least read. I don't know how, how I, w I wouldn't you know, hazard to say what, if, whether it's respected or not among film you know, scholars. Um, but he also has like deeply problematic relationships with kind of the ideas about, you know, America and masculinity and yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah, Anyway, that's just seems to be remarkable to me that like, that's like, an, that's like a, that was just a detour like thought about Fred Jameson. And I know, no, I, I, no I think it, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I can but, totally imagine having a student who wrote great novels. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've advised uh, at least one really good science fiction thesis. I mean, science, you know, somebody writing an right. SF novel. That's good. Yeah. So maybe one day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing I was going to say was I forgot. Um, what did I, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, well, the other thing you said, one other thing you said is like all, the way, you know, the way that we're describing Mars and reading Mars, and eventually we will get to talk about this chapter, which is so amazing, which we love, is the way that uh, Robinson creates Mars here of all these different pockets of utopias and competing utopias. Um, 
it strikes me that it's it's it would probably be much more difficult to just describe the contemporary earth that we live on as a system of competing utopias yeah. or competing at least competing systems that were i mean especially from an american point of view like the coup in venezuela is is going on right now and clearly it's not an ideal situation to live in venezuela right now but um you know the idea like the uber exceptionalist idea of america that like why would you ever want to live anywhere else where there are like loads of other places in the world that get along just fine that like they feed their populations and they have babies and they live in houses and like the american way isn't the only way to live on earth but matt they don't have our freedoms god you're right <laughs> i forgot about our freedoms oh i feel so free all the time i can fly like a bird i mean you know one of the like you know in part this is thinking about like um the the sort of um the homogenizing force of capital right mm -hmm. you know which while of course um distributing its harms unevenly globally mm -hmm. not randomly but unevenly globally nonetheless has a certain kind of homogenizing effect or certainly for people you know uh living in certain um parts of the globe it's capital that like produces our horizon it's capital that's colonized the future that tells us what the future is and what it would mean to get there it's capital that you know turns the future into like a way that you make money mm -hmm. um in a way to make more of itself i mean and all of those things like tend toward making it hard to think like in our present moment that one could live in any other yeah way right it's I almost mean, harder to imagine the end of capitalism than it is <laughs> To imagine the end what? of the world. Uh, <laughs> but it's also like, you know, I mean, one of the things I, so people who write about utopia, like there's a long um, kind of backing and forthing in people who write about utopia about whether like the thing that you're talking about is like essentially like a literary form or a written form, right? Or a lived form, right? Um, and without kind of getting into the whole, you know, like utopia, the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I mean, it is kind of interesting to think about um, how much, um, you know, there are other ways of living and there are people who live in other ways. Right. You know, like within our present moment, there is more difference than we're often right. able to account for, mm -hmm. you know, and those projects are often very quickly you know, relegated to like, oh, they're just like hippies right. or, um, you know, like, well, nobody else is going to join that commune yeah, or right, <laughs> whatever right. it yeah. is. But of course, within those things are, um, are, you know, it is possible to see within those things kinds of potentials right. that we don't see otherwise, mm -hmm. right? Which is not to say like, you know, um, after the revolution, we'll all live in communes. But like, it, it is to say that like, you know, it's easier to like, uh, resign yourself to a kind of like homogenized sameness often than it is to think, but there might be actually existing mm -hmm. stuff all around us, right? Or maybe not all around us. Definitely not here in my office or on this <laughs> campus, you know. Uh, but uh, I disagree. You know. I bet we could find some pretty interesting <laughs> things going on on this campus. Uh, yeah. Um, let's. And Should we talk about this chapter? Let's talk about the chapter. And by way of getting back into it, like the the way that you're talking about how it 
this chapter seems to be a great example of the way that uh, KSR resists strict categorization as hard sci-fi and you know is definitely part of the utopian the writerly aspect of this chapter like how beautifully it's written as well as the way that i was thinking about it connecting with other moments and chapters in the rest of the trilogy mm. is really incredibly beautiful um i was thinking about it last night comparing it to other moments when people uh, go out in rovers. Characters go out in mm -hmm, rovers and mm -hmm. leave and leave and get it either in trouble or encounter things. So we have Sax in this book um, almost dying. Right? Mm -hmm. Is it this book or this, the last? The last book. The last book. Um, we have Art Randolph <laughs> locked, getting locked, locked out, out of, of the his rover. Car, right. Um, and then um, we have other moments when Anne, I guess, like will leave. We'll go out on a, mm -hmm. on a on a lone trip, and like different things happen at different moments, but they or or to to these different people in different right. John Boone and and Pauline roaming around exactly. John Boone and Pauline, and um, <clears throat> uh, and they all kind of. I mean, you could do a a really fascinating you know comparison between what happens when say sex leaves his rover and gets into danger mm -hmm. versus when Anne leaves her rover and gets into mm -hmm. danger, mm -hmm. right? Um, or, and she also has this moment in here where she is similar to art, I guess, you know, someone knocks on her door. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> from outside and just bursts in, right? Um, and it's the same, basically the same group of people, roughly. Not quite, but similar to them. Um, they have stone eye teeth mm -hmm. and they're like these, you know, guerrilla warriors or whatever. Yeah, that's such an interesting conversation that they yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Um, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the opening, um, just, uh, so uh, once again, Probably. we have like a really, uh, like nice pickup from the previous yeah. chapter because the opening is a dial, a dialogue that pretty, I mean, it's obviously Michelle and, mm -hmm. and Anne. It becomes and obvious, more obvious later. It becomes more obvious later. As it and, goes on. And, but, and, but only by the end do you realize that this is like, they're, they seem to be having this dialogue over some kind of like video link, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because he's not there. Mm -hmm. He's still on the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that right? Well, does, is it, does it become clear? I mean, it is, it, it ought to be clear that they are separated and they're doing this through a mediation or whatever. Well, at the but end, um, when they start talking about home, you know, and it, and after she she has like oh you're whether, on your way back to whether Mars. willfully or not willfully like turned the conversation away from well, like about being about her to yeah, be being about, about him. him yeah um but then you know we get him right saying you know what we saw in the last chapter I want to go home right. what home that's the problem hard when you don't know where home is a yes I thought you would stay in Provence no no I mean Provence is my home but but now you're on your way back to Mars mm -hmm. yes you decided to come back. Yes, you don't know what you're doing. Do you? yeah. No. Well, and then, but you do. You know where your home is. He's almost fetishizing her in the way, like, you have a purpose. You have to follow it. I'm just Michelle. I'd float in the wind, depending on what woman I'm in. I, <laughs> I'm in a relationship with at any given moment. But it's also this sort of, um, I, yeah, I was thinking, like, so uh, I think because I'm, uh, uh, partly because I've been teaching this class not my, not at UFC about strangers mm. all year long, um, and you know one of the things that comes up in a class about strangers is like people talk about home, mm -hmm. right? You know, um, and this moment made me think just like the idea of home in the last chapter is so 
complicated. You yeah. know, Michelle's like, it's, you know, it's about like, you know, uh, uh, whatever. It's about being in the grip of memory, mm-hmm. you know, for him. Um, but then is it really that like, what Anne has on Mars or what her relationship is to Mars is that she's at home there. Mm-hmm. In some ways, like, that, you know, like, kind of domesticating it feels wrong yeah. to me. And yeah. just, which is also why, like, although there's something persuasive in Michelle's account, which is, like, oh, you had something fucked up happen to you, and it means that, like, you are try to have relationships, you only want to have relationships with stones or right. people who are like, like stones right. you know like on the one hand there's something like persuasive about that i mean it feels satisfying because it like you know is sim- works symbolically and yeah. on the other hand it's kind of like you know really i mean is that is that really what it is and in some ways that feels to me like um uh uh, it made me think about a moment that I had in therapy many years mm. ago. Where so you have a fourth, there's a, no, a new another story. story. Oh, five, story uh, number the, five. The, at some point, the therapist was like, we had been having conversations, I'd been seeing her for like months. Uh-huh. Um, and at, and this was at a very difficult time in my life. And I did not feel that our conversations were about like, you know, having relationships, you know, like would I like meet somebody who I wanted to be with? <laughs> um, and at some point she was like, you know, so one thing I would like you to take away from these conversations that we're having is, you know, you don't only have to have relationships with people who share your politics. <laughs> and I was just like, one, I don't think, didn't think that was what we were talking about. Yeah. And two, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Like, it was, like, a moment of feeling, like, so... It was just, like, a moment which I thought, like, oh, right. So the therapeutic process is about, like, normalizing you. And what's normalizing you is also, like, domesticating you. And saying, like, this is the shape that your, like, goals and desires should take. And also, oh, by the way, like, that's not about politics at all. Yeah, it's okay to date Republicans. It's okay. I mean, it was really... It was, like, a very weird thing to say. And I thought, like... Well, you know, of course you do know something about me, which is like I would be very resistant to this idea that you have, which is that like, you know, politics is something extraneous and not actually like, you know, a deep part yeah. of the way that one is in the world yeah. and why one cares Literally about other the way you see the beings. earth. <laughs> but anyway, I was thinking that in this scene with Michelle, in which like on the one hand, he definitely, you know, he's pushing her. He wants her to like, yeah. he wants her to see this thing about herself. But he's also like as a therapist in these moments, I would say he's kind of over talking. Yeah, you know? right. he's kind of That's- like. Yeah. Uh, let me give you my theory, Anne. Right. And his theory is like you love rocks um, because like you y- y- you want to be with things that don't like give back to you, right? right? Or you know, in which you can have a distanced relationship of some kind. And then that's also why you loved Simon because he was like a rock, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and, and all of that feels like I mean, there's some truth to it, but it also really undersells like what it is that she loves about Mars. I don't know if that's a domestic feeling. Yeah. I don't know if it's a, it's like a metaphor for like, you know, or if it's a symbolic resolution to yeah. a problem from her past. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I, um, yeah, it's, this chapter is very much in keeping with the previous two chapters about home and a sense of belonging to where you're at. Right. And I feel like I had a better thought about this last night because I was definitely thinking about it. Um, in relation to the previous chapters and the way that she is still um and and because again like this this is actually a moment when she has 
you know, basically is coming to grips with the fact that she's still going to be alive for a much longer time because they right, right. fixed her DNA or they manipulated her DNA to make her be alive some, some more. And so she, now she has a completely different, you know, relationship to Mars than she did before because just simply because she's going to be living on it much longer. Yeah. And yeah. so she's going out there to reacquaint herself with it. Um, and with places that she's already been, maybe, you know, 100 years ago or something, but that are, you know, new to her now and have radically changed. And have radically changed, right. Um, and so to kind of reacquaint herself with with this this landscape, which there's a really interesting moment. I guess it's toward the end, but it, it kind of comes back uh, every once in a while. It's not quite a moment, but a, a, a thought about the way that um, when you on Mars, if they're going to, they're going to, you know, halt terraforming above a certain mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. And so that, so that when you go above that level, it will be like going back in time. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was just reading this article about, um, tourism in Indian country in the American, uh, in like the middle of the 20th century. And now that's very much uh, promoted as that like yeah. you get to go and see these Indian ceremonies and really you're going back in time and it's a primitiveness and stuff like that and what's missing there is of course you're not going back in time like this is happening now yeah yeah like, this is there's a presentness there and and it's probably actually happening now because you were because there is an industry around, yeah actually right? <laughs> yeah actually not in in no small part right um especially because with with I mean in in, mm -hmm. in the in relation to like you know um tribal ceremonies that don't happen every year or even every day yeah um they yep. get reenacted because someone's paying them to but in any event um so that yeah you are definitely witnessing like a presentness there you're re representing the like the um the uh ineradicable presentness of capitalism despite <laughs> it's like it's claim to the future to futurity it always wants you to be thinking not thinking about the future not thinking about the past thinking about now and in a certain way, Anne, Anne's kind of um, acceptance of Mars as it is, that sort of is the arc of this chapter, does seem to be about like letting go of her notion that by going to Mars, I was going into the past somehow. Yeah, Like yeah. into the eons, like the, it's been here for a billion years and I'm gonna examine those billions of years and live historically, right? Whereas by the end of the chapter, she is a kind of, somehow accepts the fact that like well actually the present of mars right now is the fact that there is lichen even on these right. enormously high uh altitude at these enormously high altitudes and that there are in fact polar bears and skuas mm -hmm. and seals and kelp and lichen and all this kind of stuff and so that i don't just have to live historically or you know uh what paleo areologically or something mm -hmm. like that, um, <clears throat> that there's enough here in the now to sort of be fascinating and beautiful. And you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, some of it is, is certainly this kind of, um, I mean, maybe she has a moment that's like closer to, you know, Nergal's the green and the white. Yeah. Right. I mean, in which she accepts the mixing of things. I mean, some of it is about just this, the way in which she looks at the lichen and uh, sees them as like, you know, it's actually 
in those moments, she actually can't be telling a story in which this was a pure space right. that then has been invaded by um, human motives and the sort of like the the egocentricity of the human, right? right? Um, because the lichen that are up there are just kind of like, you know, doing their own yeah, thing, right? right? I mean, so she has a moment of like seeing the lichen for itself, yeah. right? In the way in which she's also that she's good at seeing rocks for themselves, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah, um, yeah. I think that the thing about time is interesting too, because it, I think that in the kind of um, you know, it becomes a it becomes a weirder idea when I mean those stories when we think of them in like our Earth context, you know, like lots of I mean, like nineteenth century ideas about where you get like early ideas about like tourism and yeah. like, at the beginning of like kind of like tourist industries are a lot about like this idea of travel into the past, mm-hmm. but it's always like, you know, human culture, right. Mm-hmm. You know, so like in Britain, like, um, you know, you, you begin to get a kind of tourism industry around going to places where like, um, you know, you could see the old ways of the Britons yeah, or, right, right. or the Celts they still or whatever, in the old you know, way, yeah. um, where there, there might be fairies yeah, and that right. kind of thing, yeah. you know, like the, the Brontes invented like a form of tourism basically. But like, um, uh, you know, but on Mars, like, so the, where what? the, where the, you know, like the newness, it's people people bring the the newness right yeah. for Anne, as opposed to the oldness of the planet. Yeah. And like that oldness of the planet, like it, it is about like a deep, temporality but we've talked about this before it's not historical for her i mean and she does kind of part of her struggle in this chapter is is like michelle's like but the water was there you know it's not like we brought this water in this stuff was here on mars it's not actually some foreign invading force Uh um but for her it's like the change itself right the introduction of um you know like a temporality other than the you know this kind of idea that the planet has its own temporality, which for her is unchanging. Mm-hmm. You know, she, I mean, like, so in some ways, like, the problem is, or the need is for her to reconcile herself to just, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, motion, mm-hmm. yeah, difference, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, motion, yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny, too, because she introduces the idea of tourism to the <laughs> yeah gang, exactly the You're gang gonna... who they're like hey man the sharks and the jets come into her <laughs> come into her car like we're gonna go blow up the town man and she's like no you should like be like tour guides like mountaineering tour guides and she says uh <laughs> i love i love this part i mean and this is the Anne, you know and in the this is i mean we talked about this in the last the last time we talked about it, a long Anne chapter right you know that um she has to become political, and here's the outcome of her becoming political. What do we do, a gray-haired woman said. "Go." To, this is on 273. Go to some land that's endangered, mm-hmm. Anne suggested. She gestured out the window. Right here wouldn't be bad. Or somewhere near the 6K border. Settle. Incorporate a town. Make it a primal refuge. Make it a wonderful place. We'll creep back down from the highlands. They considered this glumly. Or go into the cities yeah. and start a tour group, an illegal fund, show people the land, sue every change they propose. <laughs> Shit, the young man said, shaking his head. That sounds awful. Yes, it does, Anne said. There's ugly work to be done, but we have to get them from the inside, too, right? right. So here she is suddenly like, you know, we got to do that, uh, like, hegemonic work. Hearts right? and minds. Uh, and that's where they live. Long faces. They sat around and talked about it some more. The way they live now the way they wanted to live, what they might do to get 
from one to the other, the impossibility of the guerrilla life after the war was over, and so on. There were lots of big sighs, some tears, recriminations, encouragements. Yeah. Um, But it's such a, like, you know, there's Anne from, you know, from Anne being the, like, uncompromising voice crying in the wilderness. Here she's saying, like, yeah, you should, like, take some people on some (laughs) ecotourism. You guys should start a petition, honestly. <laughs> like maybe a bake sale. Um, it's just so funny. Not that bad. But it, well, I mean, it, it's kind of like uh, the, the the contrast is kind of like stark for them especially. But um, it is a moment where she has kind of reconciled herself to the fact that like this, that kind of guerrilla stuff is just not going to work. And you mm-hmm. have to live, you know, you have to work with what you've got, basically. Right. And in um, some ways that I mean, that is the that's a revelation that she's already yeah. had. You right. Know? Yeah. Or like when in the in the moment of action, when she had to do something, it was clear to her that right. she was not she was not on the side of cutting the cable. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, exactly. The, you know, so that like, and, and here that's like changed from like, well, how do you just like, you know, you suddenly just know that you think differently and you don't think that this project is the one that should be followed through on. From there, she's gone to the place where she's like, well, what can you suggest? Yeah. You know, and right. like, yeah, like the daily like uh, grind of the small organizing stuff you have to do to make things happen, like yeah. sounds a lot shittier than like um, blowing up sucks, like a lab. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It sucks. Organizing sucks. Uh, but it's got to be done. So I, um, I feel like one thing that we should say is, um, uh, so uh, it would not be, <laughs> it would, I think it would be wrong yeah. to undersell how crazy it is. Not just that there are birds yeah. flying around on Mars. Yeah. Um, and not just that we see a seal corpse, but that we see a fucking apex predator, <laughs> yeah. a polar bear. Yeah, a polar bear. You know, like this. Is all, I mean, this is the like, you know, from, you know, so much of the landscape that we've seen up to this point of the terror of the landscape as it's begun to terraform. I mean, we've seen disaster. We've seen big, you know, like cataclysmic shifts, floods, right, et cetera, et cetera. We know the seas, that we have seas now and ice, right? All of these things. But so much of what we've seen has been the, the alpine stuff that Sachs yeah. has seen, which is also small. You right. know, these small, delicate changes, right? The little tiny tree, the Krumholtz trees Krumholtz, or whatever they are. Yeah. Um, like all, that's what we've been looking at, you know, like the vision of like, you know, the greenness is coming to the world, but in this miniaturized form and it's like slow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then here she is by, you know, a frozen ocean. And we have yeah. to have a whole new map in this chapter yeah. because like a completely new yeah. feature is there on Mars. Yeah. A giant new geographical feature is there. Uh, and then that moment when I was reading this, um, the moment where the skuas, is that how you say it? I That's skuas? how I say it. The skuas are like... Flying overhead, I for a moment I was just like, uh huh, that's right, because she's in the Arctic. Yeah. And then I had I that know. like, oh my god, right? And yeah. it's not just like skuas and all of this, but like this, these are all like genetically modified creatures yeah, right. too, right? Modified to be able to survive On there. Mars. I mean, so you know, like this is this is this is you know, all of a sudden, like uh, we're encountering the world again, and this is, I mean, it's like, oh, it's weird, you yeah, know? like what a what a crazy world we've found ourselves in. Yeah, and it's also, uh, what does it go back? Uh, I guess it's the Nergal chapter. Everywhere life teams, it teams, right? Like everywhere yep. life is, there's lots of it. Yeah, um, at all times, and um, we, they have yeah an entire food chain, and um, 
yeah, seals. Um, and the, oh, and she, when she sees the seal corpse, right, uh, the white skeleton emerged from dark red flesh ringed by white blubber, black fur, all torn open to the sky, eyes pecked out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she hiked on past the corpse. Uh, she sits down on a boulder on the cape and looked out at the new bay. Her breath heaved in and out of her in an involuntary motion, her rib cage moving violently as during labor contractions, right? There's this rebirth going mm-hmm. on, like she's like giving birth to a new Mars, basically, mm-hmm. like just for herself, like in her idea of it. Right, um, it's also like a world covered in semen. Like, oh, that one is so gross, but yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, like a world covered in semen, yeah. The opaque ice on the surface of the bay once the ice cracked under her foot. But, um, but that... Yeah, sobs, yes. This was her body. She recalled the first time she had stumbled onto the flooding Vastitas in a solo uh, ages ago, in a solo trip ages ago. That time she had not cried, but Michelle had said that was only shock, the numbness of shock, as in an injury uh, withdrawal from her body and her feelings. Yeah. And now it's like the return of the repressed almost. There's just like this kind of like, <clears throat> oh, no, that wasn't a dream or, or that wasn't a one-time thing. Like, this is real. And now she's like fully processing it, like not just in her mind, but in her whole like body. Right. And that, uh, I mean, and so, I mean, I just, you know, if we take, if we think about the like the couple of clicks away from our version of humanness that a person who's had the gerontological treatments is, right? Not not least one who um, had them and uh, some other stuff go on while yeah. she was like passed, right. passed out, right? right? Um, and then living in a, in a world that's also like surrounded by, you know, she's just been chased by a polar bear that has some, a little bit of grizzly genes. Right. Well, that's to come <laughs> just, up. Yeah. But yeah. Just in case you wanted to make it like, you know, more threatening. Um, yeah. But yeah, but also a little bit of grizzly. Uh, but also it's like, part of what's happening is that she so presumably in some ways like some of the things that are happening to her are because she's had the gerontological treatment yeah, like right. you know she's like literally got the like viriditas yeah, in her that, right that, you know yeah, it's like flush it's coursing through her veins you know um and and we can't we don't have any way to make a separation between like the sort of experience this very embodied experience that she's having and what's happened to her body mm-hmm. or like the way in which she's processing and, you know maybe this is all just the result of some good therapy with Michelle <laughs> right, too right, right? Um, but that moment right in which like you know we get her her body I mean like you said like we have these images of like birth and rebirth right and fertilization yeah. right. Um, and that sense of her body and Mars as yeah. coming together, right? You know, the Earth is man's inorganic body, as Marx says, right? Cool. Um, you know, like, this is a different conception of what a what it is to be on a planet, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. like, not the, not the conception of the observer. Mm-hmm. And if she acknowledges, like, the livingness in her, right, and that that livingness is about being a living creature of Mars, right, then there's a way in which that's part of her ability to acknowledge a kind of livingness in Mars, too, right? right? Yeah. You know? That thing going back to, I, I guess, I don't know if it's Saks or whatever, maybe it is in this section where he says... Or he's constantly saying, and I don't know if it is in this section, but, you know, you are a part of Mars. We're all part of the ecosystem of Mars now. Like the water cycle in Mars is we're part of that. We have Mars inside of us. It right. is sex, and, right? And, uh, 
Or is that a Michelle? Well, Michelle thing? Michelle says that to her in, in the, the um, uh, yeah. But she has that great. I mean, I like that moment that you read on two fifty nine because that. Um, uh, 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 it hurt her body spasming and a seismic trembling, but when it was over, Michelle would say right. she would feel better, drained, attention gone. Yeah. The tectonics of the limbic system. She scorned such simplistic analogies as Michelle offered the woman as planet. It was absurd. Nevertheless, yeah. there she sat, right? And, and I think the part of it is like, you know, for me, like this is, a moment to think about how this is not an analogy, like the relation between person and planet yeah. is not a one of analogy, mm-hmm. right? But of a different, uh, but of like, you know, a material reality, Yeah, there's a kind right? of which, I mean, the fact that she's drained, right? Like drained, attention mm-hmm. gone. And then nevertheless, there she sat sniffling, looking out at the ice bay under scudding clouds, feeling drained. Like there's a, there's a being, she's, you know, forced into the real, right? She's no longer, she can't, escape into like the imaginary or like the scientific symbolic or something like that like there she is just as a material presence on mars like it doesn't get more real than this um than this moment and then she gets chased by the polar bear of course it's much more real to to be chased by a polar bear than just to see a dead seal and oh my god she (laughs) runs so far It's so scary. Like, this so, scene is so great. It's amazing. It's so great. So, in contrast to Sax, when, remember when Sax wanders out of his <laughs> rover, he gets lost and he can't find it yeah, again, right? Right. And she does have, like, like, I know exactly She knows where it, where it is, it is yeah. right? I mean, like, and that's her, I mean, that's also her planetariness, right. you know? Like, she's not right. disoriented. Yeah. Even though she's also, having to, like, duck down and hide because a fucking polar bear is yeah. chasing her. Because Sax also, like, relies way too much on his technology and his, like, wrist pad and, like, oh, I can call yeah. Ekus Overlook to, like, find out where I am and they can geolocate me and then that's not going to work. But she just has, like, this, she is one with the with the land in a way that Sachs just never is because he's always separated from it with his like devices and his technology and stuff. Such but a it's great so cool. 263 even running as hard as she could focusing on the ground to make sure she didn't trip over anything. She still saw the bear flowing over the red slope. I mean how crazy, right? You know, Mars with a polar bear on it. <gasps> like an after image, which of course then she keeps having yeah. the after image. Pounding, running hard, boulder ballet. The bear was fast and the terrain nothing to it. But she too was an animal. She yeah. too had spent years in the back country of Mars. Many yeah. more years in fact than this young bear. <laughs> yeah, screw you, polar bear. So good. I'm older than you. It's so I know good. more tricks about this place than you do. I just... Uh, she and- could run like an ibex over the terrain, from bedrock to boulder to sand to rubble, pushing hard but perfectly balanced in control of the dash and running for her life. And beside the ro- besides, the rover was near, you know. Try- and then, oh yeah, it's great. Um, she almost ran into it, stopped, reared up, and pounded the curved metal side with a hard triumphant wham, as if it were the bear's snout, and then with a second more controlled punch to the locked door console, she was inside, inside, and the outer locked door closed behind her. It's so great. And it's great because, like, it is just, um, you know... The opportunity to, like, have a scene in here that's like a scene out of a fantasy novel, right? The polar bear out of place. All of a sudden, there's a polar bear there, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, the polar bear out of place, the polar bear on Mars. Mm -hmm. Like, that just sounds, like, absurd on the face of it. And yet, like, you know, 
there's nothing there's nothing absurd about it it's perfect it, you know it's like perfectly in keeping with right. the world right yeah. you know with the world that they're building right there's also the polar bears in the New York 2140. Yeah, that the, part that great, is the polar bear on the dirigible. So great. Yeah. But then a few days later, she contacts Sax. She like punches him up on his, on the way back on his way back from Mars. His code is XY23. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, and then she just yells at him. Why did you? Why am I still alive? You asshole! Basically, is what she's saying. I also, she's so mean in her interpretation oh, yeah. of him. He's like, it was so I could talk to you, Anne. Yeah. I mean, it was for myself. I didn't want to be missing you. I wanted you to forgive me. And then, what does she think about that? He needed a good referee for his submissions yeah. to the oh, Meta Journal my, of Martian. That's history. so funny. <laughs> what crap! Really, so um, uncharitable. He need, yeah. That's, but it's so funny though. But he's trying to say like this thing that is so important to him, which is, I, it is important to me that we have a relationship with each other. But it's so, but also like it's such a thing an academic would do. Like, well, I need somebody to do my peer review. <laughs> I'll I mean, bring you back from the dead just so you can do my fucking peer review. But also that she gets mad about it, like on you know, like you wanted me alive for like this trivial reason. Yeah is also funny because of course there are actually very serious ways in which she could be like you know you violated like yeah. my privacy down to its like deepest core yeah. you know yeah totally not just my right to decide that i didn't want to live anymore but like my you know like my body you know i mean but but she does instead her anger it's, at him is it's turned into something else like this like it, you know yeah i mean the, just like the like you know old sniping between colleagues who don't it's, get along. What crap she said. Yes. Um, how are you doing? You look. She cut the connection. I just ran out, ran a polar bear. <laughs> I was almost eaten by your stupid games. Um, and then uh, and well, here she was. Rage, remorse without cause, inexplicable anguish, a strangely painful exhilaration. All this filled her at once. The limbic system vibrating madly, spiking every thought with contradictory wild emotions, disconnected from the thought's content. Sax had saved her. She hated him. She felt a fierce joy. She felt a fierce joy. Kasai was dead. Peter wasn't. No bear could kill her, etc. On and on and on. Oh, so strange. No, I love, because she's the woman who... You know, she refuses to die. She just is cursed to yeah, live cursed always. To live. And no bear could kill her. I love that. <laughs> I mean, it's such a great, uh, you know, also like, I mean, you know, this is one of these great moments in which like, I mean, this she's like totally like, you know, having a kind of superhero yeah. moment here, right? She's a, how old is she? 150 <laughs> at, she at just least. outran a polar bear, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and had enough energy to <laughs> yell to at yell, it, yeah. yell at her oldest intellectual antagonist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just stuff. it's so awesome. Well, and then the next thing is she meets Harry Whitebook, uh -huh. this weird guy, with a guy with claws and a muzzle. Yeah, um, there's a real like serial killer aspect to this passage <laughs> of Harry White Whitebook. Like, is he going to make her into a soup or something? <laughs> um, and because uh, he's just so like her experience of him is so like um, just creepy. Right. Uh, he's so calmly has dinner with this person that he knows and he knows who Anne Claiborne is. He knows who she is. And and he's her polar opposite. Uh, see what I did there? Yeah, clever. Because he's the guy who like invented the polar bear that she just outran. But interestingly, he says, uh Yes, I'm Anne Claiborne. I thought so. 
Peter Claiborne's mother, isn't yeah, that right? right? So, like, does he know who Anne is? Or does he just know that she's Peter Claiborne's mother? Because, I, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, he seems like too, uh, you know, he doesn't seem like he has enough guile to be saying that to, like, be rude to her. Yeah. You know, so there's a way in which, like, this is a strange moment for one of the first hundred to encounter someone who's like, oh, yeah, yeah, your son. He's done some really interesting yeah, I know. stuff. Right? Yeah, it, I, I just it, it, it this adds to his creepiness. Right. It, I think it adds to his creepiness that he identifies her as Peter Claiborne's mother uh, in a certain way, because is I mean, I is he that cagey or because. He has, he waggled a paw, right? Um, and he wipes his mu- he wipes his muzzle. He wipes his muzzle, and he it is this kind of you know his fingers ended in short blunt claws. Never run away from a predator. But the, but she it, says at the end, it is also. I mean, we really don't know. Like, is she? I mean, so when? Um, well, she's like deeply paranoid. Yes, but <laughs> well, she's perceiving him through like the trauma that she's right. just experienced. Right. Also. We get the when she first sees him, black eyes, spectacles, bald, like her stepfather, yeah, right? So right. it's possible she's experiencing him through some other trauma exactly, yeah. at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um and kind of what's interesting about it though is that then it's just this like relatively uh gentle scene with a scientist of the kind who's like so into his work that you ask him like one question, and he's like, Oh yeah, well they have a good bakery there, but also Yeah, know? right. <laughs> uh so where so where the creepiness comes in is like kind of hard to is hard to tell. I mean, all the things about, yeah, all the things about uh, him and his like bear like qualities and stuff. It is there is the part of the creepiness is I don't know what's going to happen. Like, is he, you know, she's scared of him because she identifies him as a predator of some sort. But then on the other hand, he does seem really warm and jovial and like friendly and interesting like an interesting guy i mean he makes Um, leek soup he makes leek soup which i was eating last night uh so while i was reading this oh yeah did you wipe it off your muzzle yes (laughs) i wiped it off my muzzle um but so yeah you just don't know what to do so and it's this kind of um you were mentioning before we started like there's a fairy tale quality also to this chapter and this is definitely in that vein and thinking too about the way um, thinking back to when Hiroko saves um, Sax, uh, there's that also that kind of ambig- ambiguity there of like whether it really happened or not. And the way that yeah. Anne is experiencing this both through her, the trauma of ch- being chased by the polar bear and having just had this conversation with Sax and her stepfather, like all of these things going like mixing up together in this kind of um phantasmagoric way or yeah, like hallucinatory, yeah. mildly hallucinatory way well and the the kind of like the interesting part about the fairy tale quality is like so if there's one logic in which like all of these things make sense right. because they're giving us this like you they're know fantastic the, the, the total right, fantastic right exactly there's one there's like the fantastic logic here um the fairy tale logic of like you know wish wish fulfillment right mm-hmm. you know or um uh and then the logic of like oh, we're just we're seeing like the outgrowth of terraforming, um, and then also the the potential logic of the sort of symbolic logic of this adds up to helping us un- see something about Anne, yeah. right? You know the kind of like the psychic journey quality yeah. of it. I mean, uh, Michelle tells her you should go have a walkabout, right? Yeah. You know, like go have like mm-hmm. you know go on a spirit quest or whatever, right? Do some tourism, um, and you know, like I, I mean, what like go on a road trip. both. M- m- more you know like what less appropriate 
spirit animal could an meet than a polar bear. Yeah. Although also, I guess, like a totally appropriate spirit animal for mm-hmm. her, right? Solitary. You know? yeah. Sol- solitary, slightly Apex unpredictable. Apex predator. <laughs> Loves to eat seals. Yeah. But anyway, the like, yeah, I mean, and I think that that, the fairy tale part of it reminds me of the very beginning of Green Mars when we see zygote. Or, yeah. Right? Is, is it zygote? Gamete. Gamete? Zygotes. Whichever one comes which came first? <laughs> I don't know. The zygote or the gamete? Uh, I think there is an answer to that question. Zygote. Um, but in any case, like that, you know, that sense of it is like the kind of the fairy tale wood, yeah. right? The bamboo houses. Completely. Um, uh, and here we have another fairy tale moment. The other like great fairy tale part in this um, is the uh, um, when she sees the um, the little thorn. Forest. Is it right after that? It's a little bit after that. Um, at the on. Uh, oh yeah, there it is. Two seventy five. Um, she's driving up Kesai Vallis, um toward Echos Chasma. Um, uh, uh, up, up and up, she drove on broad bench after bench, making easy progress until she came to where Kesai curved left and up onto the floor of Echos. The curve was one of the biggest, most obvious water-carved features on the planet. So here we have, like, that, like, you know, the geologist's eye that, like, mm-hmm. you know, interprets the world one way. But now she found that the flat arroyo floor was covered by dwarf trees, so small they were almost shrubs, black-barked, thorny, the dark green leaves as glossy and razor-edged as holly leaves. Moss blanketed the ground underneath these black trees, but very little else. It was a single-species forest, uh, just skipping a bit. It would be nearly impossible to walk through this canyon anymore. So we really are getting like, you mm-hmm. know, the fairy tale forest of thorns and thought this deep walled canyon so narrow and rounded, a kind of Utah of the imagination, which is a beautiful line. Or so it had been now like the black forest of a fairy tale, mm-hmm. inescapable, filled with flying black things and a white shape seen scuttling in the dust. <laughs> there was no sign of the UNTA security complex that had once occupied the turn of the valley a curse on your house to the seventh generation, a curse on the innocent land as well. Sacks had been tortured here, and so he had sown fire seed in the ground and torched the place, causing a thorn forest to sprout and cover it. And they called scientists rational creatures, a curse on their house too, and thought with teeth clenched to the seventh generation. And seven after that, she hissed and drove on. Yeah. That's incredible. I, oh my god, it's such, it's so good. I mean, she hissed. It's like I mean, I was saying too. That's very biblical in that idea of like the seventh generation and right. seven after that. And she hissed. She's the snake now. She's no longer the polar bear. She's right, the snake right, or something. Right. And then just this like, um, I mean, even the you know even the idea that like uh, you know the place had to be burned down. Um, but then replaced by these, like, yeah. you know, these little tiny trees that are, like, symbolic of what was there with their prickiness. Yeah. Although they also seem to be, like, the thing, you know, like, they're keeping back, like, the return. Where they're preventing right. the return, right? Yeah, you, you know? can't go back. Like, you, you're, no one can walk there anymore. Um, that, yeah, it will prevent it from happening again. It's, it's well, it's like trapping the dragon or it's like trapping the evil spirit yeah. in the forest yeah. or something. Or like, I mean, I, or yeah, exactly. And then also, though, like then the idea that this is like 100% intentional on Sax's part. Like, you know, Sax was like, I'm going to do something that's simultaneously yeah. practical and symbolic. Right, right? yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it's, so, it's so amazing, though. 
the bear had told her Peter was headed there, and so she avoided it. Peter, the land drowned, Sachs, the land burned. Once he had been hers, you know, who's that he? On this rock I will build, Peter Tempe Terra, the, lock of, the rock of the land of time, the new man, Homo Marshall, who had betrayed them, remember. It's like so beautiful and like yeah. so, again, like I, like you read this and obviously there are, there are obvious biblical references with Peter and the rock, but, um, but it also is just like the, the, the writing is just so great. Yeah. Oh, um, I agree. I agree. Uh, and then, so she's driving around very old. She's going back in time and all these things, but she's constantly finding growth. She's constantly finding life. Right. Um, like on 277, just that one sentence, there on a rock face, bright emerald, emerald, bright emerald moss, everything was turning green, you know? And there's so much um, ambiguity again in that line because it's ominous if you're in one mm. frame of mind for Anne, but then <clears throat> to emerge out of that frame of mind, um, you have to, focus on the bright emeraldness of it right mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that it is that it is that there is a beauty there and that there is a kind of urge uh, a will toward life a will toward living i yeah i loved the um uh the rocks that harbored the lichen were the kind of flat sun porches on which marmots would have sunbathed if they could have lived so high right i mean wow. like you know the kind of the world getting repopulated through the imagination and that like both, you know, it's a sun porch, um, the anthropomorphizing, the populating with animals and anthropomorphizing at the same time. Um, Instead, only little pinheads of yellow green or battleship gray flake lichen, the wrist pad guide said, bits of it turn away in storms blown up here, falling on rocks, sticking like little vegetable limpets. The kind of thing only Hiroko could explain, and and th- that invocation of like, it's up there by chance, right? Yeah. You know, as right. compared to her, that relentless perception she has of the terraforming as more controlled right, than yeah. it is, you know, more deliberate, more deliberately symbolic, you know, um, than it is in all probability. And yeah. here she's like walking among the rocks and the lichen that have just, you know wins they've taken on them there yeah they've taken on a life of their own or whatever or mars itself has taken on a life of its own right um none of these things were you know they're the products of intentionality but they weren't intentional somehow um i think we should read that next bit which where she's again thinking about what michelle has told her which is kind of a nice um you know in relation to thinking about therapy right you know like it looked it looked like it was not a good therapeutic interaction and yet she's still thinking about it right you know what uh go for it Living things, Michelle Michelle had said she loved stones and not men because she had been mistreated, her mind damaged. Hippocampus, significantly smaller, strong startle reaction, a tendency toward dissociation. And so she had found a man as much like a stone as she could. Michelle, too, had loved that quality in Simon, he told her. Uh, such a relief in the Underhill years to have even one such charge, a man you could trust, quiet and solid, one that you could heft in your hand and feel the weight of. Excuse me, but Simon wasn't the only one in the world like that, Michelle had pointed out. That quality rested in the others as well, intermixed and less pure, but still there. Why could she not love that quality of obdurate existence in other people in every living thing? They were only trying to exist like any rock or planet. There was a mineral stubbornness in all of them. Yeah. 
it's awesome. yeah it's so <laughs> yeah and it's such an interesting like her kind of as she's revolving through what she you know like her resistance to analogizing things, her willingness to analogize things, the possibility that, like, it's not an analogy at all, and this, like, opening up to, like, you know, well, maybe things can be kind of mixed Mm -hmm. together, right? Well, she's also, like, in all of these, like, searchings, she's also kind of, you know, she's resituating herself to Mars and and kind of looking, although she may not be aware of it but looking for a place to stay looking for a new place to mm-hmm. call home right because she's constantly saying oh we could completely live up here or you could you know encouraging the group of gorillas to like start a co- you know start a little colony up here above the line right right, and right. below where you were reading um uh, oh, who, oh, who could believe it would ever change up here on the slope of Ascreus Mons? Why hadn't they settled up here to remind themselves of what they had come to, of what they had given by what they had been given by Mars, and then so profligately thrown away? Back to the rover, she continued on up. Like she keeps going mm-hmm. up and up and up, searching for something, searching for the end of life, um, which she never will be able to find. Right. Um, even up above the silver cirrus clouds just west of the volcano's diaphanous summer summit banner and this thing about chasmo endolithic life like the mythic little red people the <laughs> microscopic gods who had spoken to john boone their own local hesiod so people said life everywhere the world was turning green but if you couldn't see the greenness if it made no difference to the land surely it was welcome to the task Living creatures, Michelle had said to her, you love stones because of the stony quality that life has. It all comes back to life. Simon, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Why could she not love that stony quality in everything? Um, Just the kind of like almost falling into like a stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Yeah, And just this flow that's so beautifully written. Yeah. And I mean, and yeah, we are inside her head Mm -hmm. here and... And in a really different way than, you know, like her moments of glossolalia, right? She's at a loss for words. And in this chapter, her head is just full Mm -hmm. of words and images and associations. Um, A lot of them revolving, obviously, around Peter, Mm -hmm. which it feels like is that's the like, uh, you know, that's like the loss that she really is having trouble Mm -hmm. acknowledging, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on 280... um, it was, as Michelle had said to her, the high places would look like this forever. Climbing the great slopes would be like travel into the pre-human past, right. into pure areology, into the areophany itself, perhaps, with Hiroko or not, with the lichen or not. People had talked of securing a dome or a tent over the calderas to keep them completely sterile, but that would only make them zoos, wilderness parks, garden spaces with their walls and their roofs, empty greenhouses, no. She straightened up and looked over the vast round landscape, held up and offering itself to space. Mm -hmm. To the chasmoendolithic life that might be struggling up here, she waved a hand. Live thing. She said the word and it sounded odd. Live. Yeah. Or live. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's such a like, um, yeah, it's such a, that's such an amazing moment. It's so great. I mean, she's like giving her benediction to this yeah. thing. Like, okay, do what you're going to do. Yeah. Like, go for it. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't need her permission, obviously, but um, it's her coming to terms with kind of everything that's happened. And Mars li- forever, stony in the sunlight, <laughs> you know. Um, and the and the, li- the living is like, you know, it's not 
just the living of the lichen, right? Yeah, right. It's like the living of the rocks too. It's like, you know, like these things are living to, together, right? This is like a different yeah. idea about what life is. And she's telling herself to live too. And she's telling herself. She's calling to live. herself a thing, thing. Yeah, right? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. You know, hey self, you're a thing, live. Um and then but of course she can't get, you know, of course the the white bear is going to be in the corner of her eye forever slipping behind a jagged rim boulder she jumped nothing there she returned to the rover feeling that she needed its protection she climbed inside uh the vague spectacled eyes seemed to be looking out at her out about to call any second what is that's her reflection wait yeah, she climbed inside, but then all afternoon on the screen of the rover's AI, the vague spectacled eyes. I, it's the, it's, it's what's his name. The, it's what's his name. Yeah. The ki a kind bear of a man, though he would eat her if he could catch her, if he could catch her. But then none of them could catch her. She could hide in these high rock fastnesses forever. Free she was and free she would be to be or not to be if she chose that for as long as this rock held. But there again, right at the corner of right at the locked door. The white flash in the corner of her eye, ah, so hard. I, the like it's so great. Yeah, this yeah. Chapter is like yeah. It's really, it's really amazing. <clears throat> it's really amazing. And like leaving her with that, like you know, little traumatic residue in the corner of her eye. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Keep you know pursued by something. Yeah. Keep her. Keep her honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Keep her motivated. Exactly. Um. Yeah, this is a really great chapter. Yeah, it's such a great chapter. And I, the, I just, I think Anne is such an amazing, yeah, interesting character whose role is just like so much more complicated, mm -hmm. so much more complex than being a, you know, being one, being an opposing term to sax in a diagram. Completely. Right? Well, and and it's, an, it's a thing too where I'm appreciating it so much more by reading it again and reading it in conversation with you that you know it this is these are books that really call out for rereading and really thinking broadly like that the whole thing is a tr the whole trilogy is one single novel in a way and mm -hmm. to um you really can't like there are patterns that are begun in the first book that aren't completed until the third and there's still more to go in this book too but that um the resonance across those three books uh, in different ways and um, across different characters too. We talked at the beginning of the episode about how when characters get out of the rover and have experiences on the surface, yeah. that's the most, that's the most they w will ever be on Mars. Like there's no more being on Mars than being on the surface of Mars yeah, yeah. in progressively less scientific gear. Right. And here she's, a, she's almost, you know, purely natural um right in the she in slaps the, the co2 right. mask on her face but to all run she's wearing better, is a dust is a dust mask yeah right which is interesting that's a such a good um that's such a good point because like the polar bear feels like this you know it's like this like symbolic loaded magical yeah real all of these other things right you know like it feels like it bears so much weight i mean and and they're bears so it, much <laughs> weight <laughs> what was the weight part Polar bears are heavy. Oh, yeah. They're big. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big bear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my point is that bear is really uh, big. It's good, a big bear. Good point, Hillary. Uh, it's a really big bear. Sorry. Uh, but the, uh, you know, like it, uh, uh, and that's why it can also be this, you know, uh, 
you know, it's this great sort of like moment of estrangement. It's a thing that you pay attention to. It's, you know, it's a charis- it's charismatic megafauna, right? Took the I words mean, right out of my mouth. It's, it's all of that stuff. Um, but of course, like, in some ways, like the the crazy newness of the experience that she's having, you know, maybe even more like deeply and yeah. embodiedly new is that she's there mm-hmm. breathing the air. Yeah. Not only because she's like not dead yeah. and actually like younger and revitalized. Right. And the more that you pay attention to that, the more it's like, oh, so is this like is the fairy tale quality because of like, you know, a sort of youthfulness right. that's running through her. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, although she's clearly not like, you know. The roles for like youthful youthful women in fairy tales are not very good. I mean, she's <laughs> got a better role than that. But but the other thing is, you know, there she's she's breathing the air, right? Yeah. I mean, th- this world is different. Mm-hmm. I mean, this world is like, and mm-hmm. that change is probably like, um, in its in the way in which it's not noticeable mm-hmm. is like more. I, I don't know, more profound. It's certainly more pervasive than the polar bear, which is just like, you know, one or two or three things i mean you can like be chased by a polar bear any place <laughs> you know? i i could not outrun a polar bear no, i would have just had to lie down and allow it to eat me yeah um yeah i think that's your best strategy with a polar bear you just just no give, one can outrun up. a polar bear <laughs> that's not a thing that's possible to do i think like Anne lucked out because of she knew the terrain better or something and she was probably far enough away from it but that part where she's like she she wonders well can polar bears smell and then gauge the direction that their prey is going right and then she looks over her shoulder again and is like yep looks like they can do that (laughs) exactly (laughs) and that then in a in like a completely like naturalistic fashion it actually doesn't get all that close to her in the end because of the rover which is obviously something that like you know it's going to be a little alarming the polar bear is not going to process that super quickly right yeah so it stays at a distance like looking at the rover man I wonder if Werner Herzog's read this chapter of this book, <laughs> Grizzly Man, right? Uh, oh, what would you, do you think a Werner Herzog? Uh, I don't know uh, if I'm... directed uh, <laughs> Red Mars would. You be... are running from the polar bear. <laughs> it is coming at you. Remember that it has grizzly DNA. It, it is, nature is always out to destroy. <laughs> it is always in pain. Uh, you got my Werner Herzog impression out of me this time. It's gold. It took 32 episodes for me to do a Werner Herzog impression. I, I'm actually kind of surprised by that. Aren't you proud of me? Yeah, I know. I know. Um, Matt is famous for his Herzog impression. It's true. I'm famous for it. it famous for it. Famous. In, in some the extensive social circles that we travel in. Ask anybody in Chicago who's been in the math program between 2012 and 2015. Next week, if we have a podcast because it might be too cold to leave our homes, um, we'll have uh, Making Things Work. Is it called Making Things Work? It's called Making Making Things Things Work. work. Guess who this Uh, chapter is about? I think it may be Nadia. Good old Nadia, the hands of the operation. I I love Nadia. Who doesn't love Nadia? Uh, Hopefully everybody does. I mean, everybody probably does. Jackie doesn't love her. No, Jackie doesn't love her. And we don't love Jackie. She's problematic. (laughs) We're taking sides. But next time it's Nadia, and we're looking forward to that. And presumably, based on what the chapter's called, it's going to be about uh, how to make things work on this new Mars that they've uh, agreed to. I'm super excited. Um, Yep. Oh, I just remembered something I was going to say. Go for it. Uh, Do you like our theme song? 
Yeah, that? of course. Yeah, it's really good. Well, yeah, by, you might, by Spirit of Space. You might be interested to know that the Spirit of Space has an album out what? that you can find on iTunes, iTunes, or Spotify, and perhaps on some other music platform. But those are the only two that I can. Apple Music, I guess, is what it's called. Not and iTunes. is our theme theme song indicative our, our of the theme kinds song is, of uh, music? I would say tunes? it is a very musically various album mm. that includes some more guitar-y songs and some more kind of dancey songs, and it is called Extra Extra. Extra Extra by the Spirit of by Space. By the Spirit of Space. So just you know, like uh, you know, take a look, take a listen. Uh, yeah, our theme music is great, and it, I, this album is great, and it's available. If you like great albums, uh, <laughs> check out the Spirit of Space's Extra Extra on iTunes and Spotify. Yeah, exactly. And if you like this podcast, if you like you, great podcasts, if you like great podcasts, you're in luck because we're making one right now. Oh my God! Somebody said on Twitter that she listened to the podcast while running a marathon. While running a marathon, yeah, she probably could outrun a polar bear. Uh, probably not because i think polar bears you run. are really against you're really against this i'm not against anything it's i think it's a scientific fact that polar bears it's run faster fact. than human beings can run <laughs> uh, because whenever you have a conversation science! whenever you have a conversation about could you outrun a predator what the answer to that conversation is what would science say? what would science yes, say because that's definitely why you're having that conversation i know that i could not in the shape i'm in now I could barely make it up the stairs to your office yeah. today. No, it is four floors. Uh, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, whatever. Uh, anyway, maybe um, the woman who ran the marathon while listening to our podcast could outrun a polar bear. But anyway, congratulations to her and to anyone who has done, really, I would say anything. Anything Any, at all. Anything, have, anything you've accomplished. Congratulations, congratulations to all accomplishments. Congratulations for congratulations <laughs> for listening to our podcast. You've uh, accomplished getting through this episode. Yeah. And you can email us about that at maroonedonmarspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at podcastonmars. You mm-hmm. can leave us, uh, you can rate and review our show on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also available on many other podcast apps. One day I'm going to quiz Hillary about all the podcast apps that uh, we're available yeah, on. Yeah, we're uh, Pocket Casts. Overcast. Overwatch. No, no that's a game. <laughs> But Overcast is a real podcast app that we're available on. That's cool. Yeah, who knew? Yeah. And then um, you can uh, leave us voicemails at anchor.fm. Yeah. And um, that's probably it. Yeah, that's about all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll be back uh, maybe next week. But again, it might be like uh, dangerously cold for us to leave our apartment. So you might get like some mini episodes. Maybe I'll watch a bad Mars related uh, movie and uh, just complain about it for 20 minutes. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, that's a good mode for you. In the voice of Werner Herzog. (laughs) (laughs) Added bonus. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Stay warm. Stay warm. Bye. Bye.